Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. So, 2020 continues to be quite a year. Um, we've just now cast our ballots as a nation uh, for a president in a presidential election. It's been quite a contentious election. Um, Joe Biden has been declared the president-elect, as I'm sure you're all well aware. Uh, but it appears as if President Trump is planning to challenge that uh, in the court system. He seems to think that there's been major fraud and that he is himself the rightful winner of the election. And of course, I have no idea what's going to happen. And I'm going to be interested to see what happens, just like the rest of you. Um, But President Trump has been quite a polarizing figure ever since he came on the scenes as a presidential candidate in 2016. I think before then, uh, he was mostly just entertaining, right? He, he had his own TV show. He, if anyone cared about him at all, it was just that he was entertaining to watch. And so he didn't really have people that loved him or hated him. He just seemed to uh, be entertaining. Um, but when he became a candidate in 2016, that kind of changed, uh, it seems as if people started to either love him or hate him, and there seems to be very little in between. Um, I, the, the final tallies of the votes are not quite in yet, as far as I know, uh, but it appears as if more people voted in this election than in any other presidential election that we've ever had as a nation. Um, so he certainly got out the vote, either to vote against him or to vote for him. Now, in the run-up to the election, there was quite a lot of discussion uh, among Christians, and particularly in our circles, uh, conservative, reformed Christian circles, um, about whether Christians could, given uh, Donald, President Trump's character, vote for him in good conscience. And I think these are very good discussions for us to have um, as Christians. We need to have these discussions. Um, And at this point, we've all made our decision as far as that goes. You know, you've either decided to vote for him or not for him. Um, But I want to say a word about this, and that is that if, if nothing else, I hope that this election cycle has kind of busted us loose from this view of seeing the Republican candidate, whoever that is, uh, as some sort of uh, King Arthur pulling the, the sword out of the stone, you know. Um, <clears throat> our presidents for generations now have had a kind of baptism, you know, whether it's the photo with Billy Graham or something else that gives him the patina of being God's elect for our nation. And um, whether or not uh, a particular presidential candidate uh, has policies that are, or would advance policies that would be more favorable to, favorable to the church or not, that's one thing. And we can have a discussion about that. But I don't think it's right for our presidential candidates to trade on God's name to get political votes. And, and so if, if 
to whatever degree that that's done with, I'm, I'm personally happy about it. Um, now, but again, I, I bring this up because President Trump got people invested in this election, one way or the other. Either you hated him and you wanted to see him gone, or you were quite passionate about him and really wanted him to be in office. And I think um, part of the reason for that is that he was willing to have enemies, right? uh, On both sides, that's the reason why people got passionate about it. Either you felt like he was fighting for you in the areas of, say, religious freedom or abortion or political correctness, right? Uh, You know, I don't know if I've ever seen a president so willing to be politically incorrect, and, and, if, um, and if, if that was a comfort to you, you're totally on board for him. If it wasn't, uh, you, were, you, were, you hated it. Now, the dissection and discussion about who he was and what he meant for our, for our country and the politics of our country is, of course, a discussion that we as Americans can have, should have, It's good for us to have, Um, but that's not my purpose today. My my purpose in in highlighting this and highlighting this election is to to point out that we all got really worked up about it, right? We got really worked up about it on either side, whether for or against. And my contention is that the reason we got worked up about it is because we are worldlings, we are afraid of what the, uh, you know, we're afraid of what will happen if the other guy wins or if our guy loses. We're afraid of losing our comfort and our wealth, our way of life. We're afraid for what it will mean for those that we love, our family. Uh, those of you who are children in here right now, you may not know it, but your parents worry about you. <laughs> And what kind of life you will be able to have. And in fact, a lot of the, what they do, children, well, a lot of what your parents do right now is work to try to help you have a life that they hope is good. And so we worry about what, uh, what an election will mean for our children. We worry about what an election will mean for the church. Will uh, we as a church face more pressure to conform to the world? Or will we be free to worship God as our conscience leads us? As, as citizens, we may be afraid for what it will mean for our nation. We, we are patriotic and, and we're grateful to God for the many gifts that he's given to us uh, in our nation. We have gifts of prosperity and, and gifts of freedom, the ability to speak uh, out freely without uh, worry of reprisals from the government. Uh, and so we're worried, will these things continue? And it's interesting, we're not just worried about tomorrow, and in fact, really, none of us were worried about tomorrow when the results of the election came out. We're worried about a year from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. Uh, and on the other side, people are enormously relieved, right? Right? Not just about tomorrow, uh, but about the long-term prognosis of our country. You have some people who are literally dancing in the streets about it, and other people who are weeping in front of their televisions. 
And so we as a nation cared about this election, cared quite a lot. And my goal today, I have two goals in my sermon today. My first goal is to try to get us, to try to pry us away from all the, 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 our phones and Twitter and all the blogs and the podcasts and to, to get us to take a deep breath and to realize that God is still on his throne whether Joe Biden or Donald Trump remain in the White House in January. <clears throat> My second goal is to try to give us a vision for what to do next. Um, how are we supposed to live? Uh, we trust that God is on his throne, our citizenship is in heaven, and yet how are we supposed to live this short time that we are on earth? Uh, my goal is not to advocate a kind of quietistic religion. What is quietism? What is quietism? It me- simply means that you withdraw from the daily things of life and you live a very spiritual existence. You think that the day-to-day stuff is irrelevant. Um, it's kind of let go and let God sort of an attitude. That's not my purpose. It's not like the results of these elections don't matter at all. Um, there are consequences to, to presidential elections, and they are serious, but we'll get to that in a minute. So first, let's open our Bibles and look at our passage today. It's uh, from Philippians chapter 3, and I'm beginning with verse 17. Philippians three seventeen. Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, there's one more verse. Verse four, uh, chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So my first question to you today is, what does your passport say? Where are you from? What is your citizenship? What does the passage say? It says, for our citizenship is in heaven. And so if that's the case, why are you acting like this is your home? Why are you acting as if the fate of the world depends on this election? Now, how does it feel to live in a foreign country? We watch with interest, but not with the same level of urgency, right? It's, it matters what happens, but it's not essential. We simply aren't as concerned. We're more concerned about what happens at home than we are in a foreign country. My contention this morning, again, as I said, is not that we're glued to our phones uh, because we're patriotic, but because we're worldlings, we're short-sighted. What does Christ say to us? In Matthew chapter 6, he says this, 
For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The first thing this passage helps us to remember is that God is the one who provides for us. God is the one who provides for us. Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to your life? What will your worrying do about the condition of who's in the White House in January? Nothing. Nothing. How much Twitter do you have to read to realize that it will do no good to change anything (laughs) about who's the, the president or who's in Congress or who's in the Senate? Nothing. God is the one who provides for us, and our worry uh, can do nothing to help us. But there's another thing that this passage reminds us about, and it says that the grass of the field is alive today, and tomorrow it is thrown into the furnace. Its beauty lasts only for a day. And this should remind all of us of our own death, of how short our time on this earth is. It's a good thing to be reminded of your own death. It's bracing. It clarifies the mind. And no matter what, who we are on this planet Earth, uh, a man or a woman, a Muslim, a Christian, a Democrat, a Republican, an American, a Chinese, the fact of death means that every last one of us is only a pilgrim here on Earth. And you wouldn't believe that watching our behavior, would you? Right? It's really strange. We're always like right on the edge of death, really. And yet we live and act and think as if we're going to be here tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. It's very strange. Uh, There's not a single person who is not facing death at some point. And yet we think that we're going to be here forever. And we give ourselves to all, kind, all manner of sin and foolish distractions. You'd think that more of us would be supremely concerned about the next life, given the fact that each of us will die, uh, and that in a relatively short time. You'd think that we'd be eager to know, desperate to find out how to arrive safely on the other side of death. Because the truth is this, every last one of us is on a pilgrimage. And the scriptures teach us that we are on a pilgrimage either to everlasting joy or everlasting destruction. We are either citizens of the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. And so what does it mean while we live this brief span of time on the earth What does it mean to be a citizen of this kingdom of light, this kingdom that we're citizens of, but we've never been to, we've never seen before? Uh, What does that, that mean? Well, first off, it means that we're strangers and aliens here. We watch the elections remembering that this is not our final resting place. We are on a journey. We're going home. 
were like the proverbial Englishman in New York. And it was really, really fascinating. Uh, in preparing for this sermon, I read a, a sermon by, uh, on this topic by Charles Spurgeon. And it was dated in the early 1860s. Now, any idea what was going on in the world in the early 1860s, right? Um, and he mentions uh, what it would be like to be an Englishman in the United States at the time. And he, it's really fascinating because he talks about those, those poor people, you know, those, those sorry Americans. And he even uses the phrase, the disunited states. Um, and it's, it's just really hit me because, yeah, that's right. Uh, we are on a journey. What would it be like to be in, an Englishman in the United States? You'd think, wow, that's really rough. And you'd probably be a little scared yourself, right? You want to keep your head down, not get shot. Um, but you'd be wanting to go back home. You'd be thinking about, I'm glad I get to go back home. Well, and, and of course, I remember being an American living in Africa, um, and we lived in a couple different countries, or I did, and uh, we certainly cared about what was going on around us. There were times when, in fact, my family was evacuated out of a country because of the turmoil. Um, so we cared a lot, but we cared even more about what was happening back in, in the good old USA. And so... Um, so we are strangers and aliens here. It, what happens here matters, but our thoughts are on our home. Being a citizen of the kingdom of light means that we are on the lookout for a better country. As it says in Hebrews, we're looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Our home on earth may be nice. It may have many things to commend it. We may, as a nation, have been blessed with wealth and with many freedoms, but all of that pales in comparison to a better country. And how is the, the country where we're headed better than this one? How is the country where we're headed better than this one? Can you, I, I'm actually curious. Can you shout out a few ideas? How is it better than, it, than this one? It's eternal. Very good. That's right. What else? Nice trees. Okay, the beauty of it. The tree of life you're talking about. Okay. Yep. No sin. Perfect. That's right. There's There's no strife. We don't have to go through elections where people literally hate each other. We are united in loving our king and being under his protection. We have a king who will rule with perfect love and mercy and justice and truth and all those things working in perfect harmony. What a thing to look forward to. What a thing to look forward to. Being a citizen of of, uh, the kingdom of light means that we hold the things of this world loosely. And this is something I think um, particularly the conservatives... Um, in a, an election like this should be reminded of. Because we like, you know, the conservatives like to campaign on things like 
the, the concepts enshrined in our Constitution, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, right? Uh, we, we, they campaign on things like faith and family. These are things that, uh, that we, uh, and, and, and private enterprise, you know, this kind of thing. These are things that, that matter to us, and yet, and yet, Scripture tells us that those very things that we prize the most are precisely the things that we hold, we're to hold loosely. Philippians 3, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for what? For the sake of Christ. Matthew 10, Jesus says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We as Christians are to hold even the good things of this life loosely. For what? Not because we're monks going off and living on a pole somewhere in the desert, but because... We want to get to heaven. We want Christ Jesus. He is our treasure. So my whole goal in this first half of my sermon has been to try to, con- try to have the world fade, the things of this world fade to us in light of the next. It's hard for us to believe, but the next life will be more real, more solid than anything in this life. And we as Christians have to have that, the light of eternity, in our hearts and minds at all times. And this is a sermon that should be able to be preached whether uh, the good guy wins or the bad guy wins, right? At all times, we have the light of eternity in our hearts and minds. But it doesn't mean, this fact does not mean that we, like I said, go off and live in a desert somewhere. We live in the midst of paradox. Jesus said, to save your life, you must lose it. And so the question comes to us now, if we are to live in the light of eternity, how are we to live now? Does that mean that we're to become Amish? No. This truth that, uh, that is so dear to Christians that our home is not here but in heaven is not some kind of, uh, it's not actually a pressure release valve, right? It's, if you're thinking, phew, that means I can relax and not worry about any of this, uh, you've, well, not worry, that's the wrong word. You're not supposed to worry about it. Um, but but if, it, if you think that I can just withdraw from it all, you've got it all wrong. Jesus didn't tell us to seek first the kingdom of God so that we could be lazy and self-indulgent and not care about anybody else. The purpose, my purpose in the previous section was to, to remind us that we must not threat, fret because we have God on the throne. But the alternative to worry and fretfulness is not laziness or carelessness. My goal is not to get us off the hook when it comes to having faith. I'm not trying to justify your lack of faith in the power of God to work in this present age uh, by what I'm saying. I'm trying to encourage you to have 
more faith. And so we should feel the very same tension that the Apostle Paul felt in Philippians 1. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We think about heaven and we think, yeah, I want to go there now. Why do I have to be here? Why do I have to stick around? That sounds great. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Paul felt this, this crucible, right? He sees the heavenly kingdom and he says, I want to go there. Do we even want to go there? That's the first question, right? Do you even want to go there? Are you content to be here? Well, if you do want to go there, uh, then you feel the pressure that the Apostle Paul feels here. And what is his response? He says, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul was willing to live on in the flesh because he had work to do. And this, brothers and sisters, is my next point. The just shall live by faith. We have one foot in this world and one foot in the next. We are here now, and we're content to be here because God has given us work to do, but we are headed to the eternal kingdom uh, for an eternity. So if that's where we're headed, and we're called to live by faith, uh, we're on this pilgrimage, then where's the map? As I referenced earlier, we're, we're, we're on a pilgrimage, we're supposed to get there, but how do we, how, what is the map to get there to a place where we've never been before, we can't see, and you only get to after you die? So what in the world are you supposed to do now in order to get there? <clears throat> the first thing I want to say is to again, to mention to the children again, if you're if you've stuck with me, kids, you're doing great. You're doing great. I want you to listen up. Are you awake back there, Jerome? <clears throat> I want you to listen because you are never too young to realize that you are on a pilgrimage. Do you remember uh, Pilgrim's Progress? What happens at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress? Why does that story even exist? Well, at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian has a conflict. He sees, he realizes, he's one of the few to realize that his city, his homeland is headed for destruction. And so he's, he needs an answer. He needs, to, he needs to get out of there. How is he supposed to do it? Um, and, and the rest of the book is him working out that answer. And, and you, children, you have to realize that you are on a pilgrimage. You don't, you don't start your pilgrimage when you're an adult. You start the moment you show up here. And your parents are there to help you along your journey. They're trying to give you the tools and the things you need for the journey. But you're already on it. <laughs> you're already on it. You've begun. 
And you don't have a choice. We are journeying to one of two places, remember. We're either going to eternal joy or eternal destruction. We're all on a pilgrimage, and we're going one of two places. So how do we get there? What's the map? The map is to follow, is given to us right here in in Philippians chapter 3 by by the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to jump back uh, to earlier in the chapter to to verse 7 through 11. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Whatever things, whatever things of this world were gained to me are lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So first, in following this example of the Apostle Paul, we do not put any confidence in the flesh. We don't put any confidence in the money in our bank account, in the status that we have uh, in society. We don't put any uh, confidence in our intelligence or our beauty or our strength. We don't put any confidence in our earthly citizenship, whether that's American, British, Chinese. We don't put confidence in nations or kings. Uh, uh, You know, this is why I, I pray that evangelicals in this country will not put their confidence in the Republican Party. Um, All of these things Uh, are not worthy of our confidence. They will fail. We put our confidence in Jesus Christ. We want to be found in Him, having the righteousness that is through faith in Him. That's foundational. That is to follow Paul's example. What else? We also store our treasure in heaven. And this looks foolish to the world, but it is precisely what, Je- what Jesus commanded us. He says, store your, tre- your treasure where neither moth nor rust destroy. And how do you do that? <clears throat> how do you do that? You care about things of eternity rather than things about this, uh, on this earth. It's not that you don't love your family. You know, Jesus isn't teaching you that you don't love your, your, your kids or your wife or your neighbor. He's teaching you that you love them in order to get them to heaven, right? This is, this is the goal. You don't love them to make yourself look good or to feel good about yourself or to even have uh, happiness here because the happiness that's here is transitory. All our loves... All of our effort is, is aimed at heaven, at going to the kingdom of light. And so we don't hold, we store our treasure in heaven. We store our treasure in heaven. All that we have, all the, all the money that is in our bank account, 
all the, the things that God has given us, the family that we have, we use all the means that God has given us to reach that end. And that looks like foolishness to the world. To get there, you have to be acquainted with heaven, right? If you're going to plan a trip, a a vacation to Colorado, you have to have some idea about the place where you're going, right? If you're making a trip to Colorado, you plan where you're going and how you're going to get there and uh, what you're going to do when you get there. So a Christian thinks much about God and much about heaven. Our minds are there. We think about it because that is where we're headed. And when we do that, the world, the things of this world, will gradually fade. And this, again, is important for you children. I mean, obviously, adults can, can give themselves to vain pursuits, vain pleasures, uh, things that are worthless. But kids especially, uh, you, you, you have a temptation to care about things that really don't matter very much. You know, how many of you have had the experience as parents of your, your kids coming in with a stick that they just have to have, you know? And it's like, it's, I need to like stick it, put it by my bed. Um, it, 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 and as an adult, you look at that and think, you know, that's really not that important. But we do the very same things as adults, right? We, we care about things that do not matter. Facebook, Twitter, right? As adults, we spend time on, on those things and um, our entertainments. We give ourselves to things that do not matter. <clears throat> so, we've, again, we're following Paul's example of holiness by not putting any confidence in the flesh, by putting our confidence in Jesus Christ. Uh, we store our treasure in heaven, not on this earth. And we do that by, by being acquainted with heaven and, and, and recognizing the vanity of this, this earth. <clears throat> and we also desire to be conformed to Christ's death. We want to be humble like he was. We want to and are willing happily to suffer hardship like he did. The Bible doesn't say that, uh, the Bible says that suffering hardship is a privilege for a Christian, Right? And, and this is the thing. We're so afraid of being suffering persecution, but persecution isn't going to keep you from getting to heaven, right? <clears throat> they can't keep you from getting to heaven by persecuting you. Rather, be afraid of things like unbelief or schism in the church, things that harm uh, the, uh, the ability for, for, God, uh, for his, God's ministers to preach the word and to go out and call men to repentance and faith. Uh, those are the things that, that would concern us as Christians, not the fact that we're going to face persecution, because if we do, uh, that is a privilege to us. <clears throat> and finally, by way of uh, following Paul's example, example of holiness, uh, we fight temptation and sin. And that's not easy. That's not easy. It's hard. And it's hard not because all the uh, forces of, of hell are arrayed against us, even if that may be true. Uh, that's not, I think, the, the primary thing that makes it so hard. The primary thing is because you're battling with your own heart, right? 
You're battling with the temptations that, in, that have easily entangled you. <clears throat> and so, and it's, it's very tempting on our journey uh, to, to get discouraged and depressed because we failed yet again. We sinned yet again. And so you think, is it worth trying again? Or, or you feel like, well, eh, this is just the way it is. I'm just never going to get over it. No, we fight until the day that God takes our last breath from us. <clears throat> we don't fight because we're trying to prove to God our righteousness, but we, we fight because God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus, and we are headed to the eternal kingdom. <clears throat> the way to get to heaven <clears throat> is not found in some sort of secret handshake. It's not found in being a part of a secret club. It doesn't mean that we all need to get our guns and become soldiers and fight a, a war. It doesn't mean that we all must become political agitators. Uh, it's, it's one of these things where uh, you can easily be confused as a Christian because you see, like, you know, nowadays in our culture, we felt, we feel the culture changing around us, and we feel the pressures against uh, godliness and against His church. And so we think that we need to respond in, in a way that's similar to the way that the world responds, whether it's picketing or, or whatever. And there's, there's a place for, for running for office. There's a place for being a soldier. There's a place for all the things that, uh, that you might, as an individual, be called to do. But what does Scripture tell us about uh, what our aim should be while we're here on, on this earth? Let me read two passages, uh, and we'll... First, from 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And then again in 1 Thessalonians it says, <clears throat> Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you. I've always found that a little bit surprising because you're talking about the Apostle Paul, right, writing those words. He had the very opposite of a quiet life. And so how are we, what does it mean to imitate Paul, the Apostle Paul, and yet also have it our ambition to lead a quiet life? Well, the, the secret sauce in that is to realize that that ambition is actually a world-changing kind of a thing. It is, it is the precise thing that does uh, cause uh, the strongholds of Satan to fall to the ground. You know, what is he advocating? <clears throat> Get married, raise a family, go to church, work hard, help plan a church, start a school, go to college, learn a trade, start a business. Teach your family, teach your kids about Jesus Christ that their treasure is not in this world, but in heaven. All of these things we don't do like the pagans do, assuming that, that the, uh, the, the value of it 
depends on us. On us, you know, uh, we don't get married trusting that our spouse and I are gonna be the ones uh, that we're super special or something like that. We get married in faith, trusting that God will bless our work. And it's, not, it's likely that we won't even see a tiny fraction of the fruit of our lives. So we work and live by faith. As I said earlier, the just shall live by faith. And again, this is world-changing stuff. This is world-changing stuff. And it's, it, it's precisely what prepares us for heaven. And it's possible, like in the case of, you know, you think of a Martin Luther or something, uh, as you do that, some, as we do that, some might become martyrs and heroes, like the Apostle Paul, right? Maybe. Um, but it will be, if so, it'll be because you've been faithful in the little things that God has given to you, and God has raised you up to that work, right? And so finally, it all comes down to hope. It all comes down to hope. Why in the world would you choose to get married and have children in this evil day? Not because things are going well, necessarily, but because we hope in the return of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in our passage that He is our Savior. It says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't wait for a political party or a nation. He, Christ Jesus, is the one who will transform our humble present state into conformity with the body of His glory. And so, as I end today, my question to you is, what do you hope in? Notice what it says here. Christ is the one who has the power to subject all things to Himself, and He will do it. We think that a political party or a a big corporation has the power to rule and orchestrate things, but it is Christ Himself who has who has that power, and He is the one who is our hope. And so we work and we live in hope. Not in our own work, but in the, in the work that God has done th- uh, through Jesus Christ. So let's get to work and have hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do thank You for Your mercy to us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we do have this hope of an eternal uh, resting place in heaven. And I pray, Father, that we would be faithful. I pray that we would not use your words as an excuse for a lack of faith or for laziness, but that we would do our work cheerfully and uh, joyfully, Father, not minding uh, if it seems as if things are falling around, apart around us, but instead... Uh, trusting that you will cause there to be good fruit from our labors. Help us, we pray, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.